I invite you to turn with me to Galatians chapter 5. Galatians chapter 5, beginning in verse 13. For you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. Let us pray. Father, your word again instructs us, and here so practically. Give us ears to hear it, and may our lives live out what you have for us in this word. I pray in Jesus' name, amen. Our country is known as the land of the free, and with the kind of political freedom that we possess, we find that Americans use their freedom for all kinds of things. Some people use it to try to jump over the Grand Canyon in a motorcycle. Some people use their freedom to protest. Some use it to sign up for the military instead of be drafted. Some use it to write for newspapers, political opinions that are contrary to the ones of the party that holds office. Some use it to worship. There's a variety of ways that we use the freedom that we possess in this country. If you are a believer, a believer in Jesus Christ, you possess freedom. Genuine believers in Christ are free. And the question before us in this passage is, how do you use your freedom? How do you use the freedom that has been given to you? Maybe better to ask it this way would be, rather than how do you use it, how should you use your freedom? As you live in the freedom Christ has given, how shall you live? Before we answer that question from the text, I need to give you one key fact that's drawn there from verse 13. One key fact is that you were freed because God called you. It says in verse 13, For you were called to freedom, brothers. Before knowing how you should use your freedom in Christ, you need to know one key fact, and that is that you were called to freedom. The foundation of your freedom is that God summoned you to it. To be called by God, when it says you were called, the clear actor in that calling is God. It indicates God's initiative. He is, to modernize it a bit, the one who picked up the phone and called you 
to freedom. I love Calvin and Hobbes, the cartoon strip. If you've never read Calvin and Hobbes, I'm not usually giving secular recommendations from the pulpit, but it's worth your time. There's a, it's a cartoon, in case you're unaware, about this um, six-year-old who has a stuffed tiger named Hobbes, and he's always up to something. And in this particular one, Calvin hears the phone ring, and this is the day before caller ID and cell phones. And the six-year-old goes to the phone, picks it up, and answers by saying, Hello, Calvin speaking. I'd like to order a large anchovy pizza. And the person on the other line says, What? I, uh... Then Calvin says, Oh, I'm sorry, you must have dialed the wrong number. Goodbye. <laughs> and as Calvin hangs up and walks away, he says, I try to make everyone's day a little more surreal. When someone calls you, they have an agenda. Calvin set the agenda for the phone call, but typically when you get a phone call, somebody is calling with an agenda, some reason for which they are calling you. They dialed first. They initiated the phone call. They have a reason. Theologically speaking, God is the one who calls. You are not the one who calls God. He calls first. And without God calling, you would never come. Romans 3.11 says, no one seeks God. No one seeks for God. It's a humbling reality to embrace. And some of us are under a misconception that we are the ones who sought God first. So certainly we seek God, but only after he has sought us. It works that way. He made the initiative. Robert Duncan Culver tells the story of a man named Clarence, who was 42 years of age, married, father of two, longtime worker in a foundry, was a new believer and a transformed man, when I became his pastor in my first charge after seminary. When given opportunity, he would give a testimony, sometimes saying something like this. When I heard the evangelist preach, I knew right away I was a lost sinner and had the sense to accept the Savior. I've been explaining this to the guys at the foundry, and they are all too stupid to accept Christ too. Clarence soon learned the rest of the story that it was not any superior wisdom of his own that enabled him to see himself as in need of the Savior and why he had the will to believe. He quickly grew in faith and knowledge and in grace. In our text, when it says, you were called, it beckons us to realize that God is the initiator of our salvation and because he's the one who initiates, he has the program before us for what salvation he is giving to us. The reason we need God's initiative is not only because we do not seek God on our own, but also because Scripture says we were dead in our sins, alienated from God, and so there's really no hope for us left to ourselves. We needed God to make the first move, and he does. And this move that God has made is called by theologians an effectual call. 
It doesn't mean just that a broad call is gone out to call sinners to repent and believe. It means that sinners are transformed inwardly to receive the call that God is offering to them. And so then, there can be the group of believers who are known as the called. Romans 1.6 says, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. And the calling is not something that depends on our initiative, but it's rooted in God's grace. 2 Timothy 1.9, speaking of God who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. And as we've been reading in John, it's very clear that it is God the Father who calls. John 6, 44 to 45, Jesus says, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. It is written in the prophets, and they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. I spend time on this to show you that it is God who does the calling in your life. If you have come to Christ, it is because God has called you. So the conclusion is then that if God has called you, you don't get to pick up the phone and say, I'd like to order an anchovy pizza. God sets the terms of the call. And when it says you were called to freedom... We don't get to set the terms of the freedom to which God has called us. It's his call. And so we need to clarify something here at the very outset. Because when we think of freedom as Americans, we tend to conjure up this idea of this autonomous living where I can do whatever I want. Your freedom in Christ is not autonomous. Even your Christian freedom is under the lordship of Jesus Christ. Far be it from Christian freedom to be that devilish notion that we are autonomous cre creatures who have no one to answer to except ourselves. We don't live in a universe like that. There is always accountability. And our Christian freedom is not that we are autonomous. Rather than just being a negative thing, Christian freedom is a wonderful, life-giving thing. God is a generous God who frees slaves. He sets you free from the condemnation of the law and sets you free from the guilt of your sin. To be free in Christ is to not live under God's condemnation, to not live under his wrath against your sin. To be free in Christ is to live forgiven. To be free in Christ is to live with the Spirit of the Son of God in your life. You were called to freedom, brothers. It's a wonderful freedom. Freedom from guilt, a freedom from slavery to sin. A freedom that is enjoyed by people who are called children of God. 
So now that that fact is established, how do you use this freedom that has been given to you to which you have been called? First, don't use your freedom to indulge in sin. Don't use your freedom to indulge in sin. Paul puts it this way. Don't use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. Freedom is a circumstance that we possess. And how will you use it? Some people have been given the great privilege of getting a free ride to college either by means of their parents paying for them or getting some scholarship. And you've probably heard the stories of no of the people who end up in a top-notch academic institution, kind of set free from the boundaries of high school and parents. And they have a wonderful education in front of them to learn from the top scholars in their field. They can come out of college debt-free, In freshman year, where do you find them? At the frat house, getting drunk, wasted, grades tanking, and losing their scholarship. And now they're facing expulsion from school with no hope of getting that education. They've squandered their freedom. Don't squander your freedom. You've been lifted up. You've been exalted in Christ. You've been placed into a position of exquisite privilege in Christ to be called a child of God. Don't squander your freedom. But the circumstance of Christian freedom comes with some precarious temptations because of what we understand theologically but are slightly led astray in our thinking. You could think wrongly, but you could think, and many of us have thought, that because every sin of yours is forgiven, well, I can go ahead with this one too. There's an amount of logic there. Because I'm forgiven, well, God will forgive me for my coarse language. God will forgive me for the indulgence of my flesh. God will forgive me for this immorality. God will forgive me if I bear this grudge until the day I die. God will forgive me. God will forgive me. It is freedom to be forgiven. It is squandering your freedom if you use it to go on sinning. Although there's a certain amount of logic there, it is not sanctified logic because the freedom that you have been brought into as a child of God is a freedom from the shackles and bondage of sin. And so when you decide to use your freedom in order to sin, you're putting yourself back in the very shackles that God has set you free from, and therefore you're not living in the freedom God has given to you. And so while your thinking may be rational in a human mind, it is not rational in the mind of God. And that is the mind that matters. There are various slaveries and various freedoms in Scripture 
be worth your time to turn to Romans chapter 6. Romans chapter 6, verse 16. Paul's addressing a similar concept here. He says, Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness? But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed, and having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. And then in verse 20, For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. And then verse 22, But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. You hear the different kind of freedoms and the different kind of slaveries there. The first set of freedom and the first set of slavery is freedom in regard to righteousness. That means you were not able to live a righteous life. And the reason for that was because you were a slave to sin. The second set of freedom and slavery is that you're freed from sin. That means you're no longer in shackles to it, no longer bound to do its will. But the slavery that you now possess is a slavery to God. And so the scripture presents to us the reality that at the same time, you are always free and always a slave. It's just what are you free in regard to and what are you a slave to? When you've been freed by God, you become a slave of God and you're freed from sin. When you are justified, which is the main theme of the book of Galatians that we're studying, you are freed from the guilt and condemnation of this, from the sin that you have observed. You are freed from earning your salvation on the basis of works of the law. It's been purchased for you. You're freed from your old way of living. You've been given the Holy Spirit. The chains of sin have been broken. So now, brothers and sisters, live in your freedom and don't use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. Back in Galatians... That's the first way that we are to use our freedom is to not indulge in the flesh. Second is, use your freedom to serve others. Use your freedom to serve others. Again, Paul says in Galatians 5.13, only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. It's an amazing paradox that comes to us that you are freed in order to be a slave. may not jive with some of your rationalizations, but it jives with the very mind of God. What a wonderful play on words here. You may not see it as much in your English, but when it says, through love, serve one another, it would literally be act as a slave toward one another. 
So you've got free people who are enslaving themselves. Of course, you're freed to become a slave. How does that work? How does freedom lead to slavery? I think it works this way. When you are, as Galatians has been detailing, trying to work out your salvation by works of the law, you are under the obligation to keep all of the works of the law. And you will become very self-focused because your whole striving in life is to earn enough credit in order to please God. And so you're not really focused on other people. You're focused on yourself as you strive to work for your salvation. You become a very self-centered person, thinking about yourself and your law-keeping in order to serve you so that you get saved. But the message of the book of Galatians is that Jesus Christ has come And he took the curse of the law away from you by becoming a curse for you so that you are not saved by works of the law. You are saved by faith in Jesus Christ. And that means that every last drop of your salvation, every drop of your merit before God, everything that God could ever give you comes to you not on the basis of your works, but on the basis of the blood of Jesus Christ. And so you are freed from having to work for your salvation. And if you are now free from working for your salvation, that frees up a lot of time and energy to serve other people. Because you are now no longer obligated to earn your salvation. You've been given everything. Since Christ has watched out for you and freed you from the burden of earning your salvation, you are now free to serve others. So, use your freedom to serve one another. Well, how are you to serve? You are to serve with love. You are to serve with love. Plenty of people serve others without love. If you go to a restaurant today, you will have a server And they will serve you because you pay them to do so. Lots of people serve from motives other than love. And so it's wonderful that Paul kind of catches us in this. We're not let off the hook just to say, go serve one another. No, he doesn't say that. He ups the ante and says, through love, serve one another. You don't come now to serve others out of mere duty, mere obligation. You don't serve others with the question on your heart, what's in it for me? You serve out of love. You've already been given everything you could ever need for eternity. You've been guaranteed an inheritance and been adopted into the family of God. You've been given the Holy Spirit. And now you get to serve through love. Brothers and sisters, that is real living. Serving through love is real living.
because that's exactly what our Savior did. He didn't serve out of mere sense of duty and obligation. He didn't serve with a pure sense of what's in it for me. He served out of love for those he came for. And you are meant to have the life of Christ formed in you. Romans 8 says that God is conforming us to the image of his son. And so what better way to be conformed than to be the kind of people who wash each other's feet? Because that's what Jesus did, and he did it to give us an example. And so we are to serve through love. And as believers, we should have a robust definition of love. Our culture right now has this nonsensical, tautologous slogan, love is love. That means nothing. It says nothing. Oh, it means something because of the cultural kind of application of it, but it really doesn't define what love is. It basically says whatever you say is love is love. Well, that's not true. We actually define love. We define what it is. It's not anything you want it to be. It gets defined, and it gets defined in Scripture really clearly. 1 Corinthians 13, you know what it says. Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not rejoice in wrongdoing. It rejoices with truth. It does not insist on its own way. Or 1 John 4, 10 and 11, in this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. Love involves seeking the good of others at times at great cost to yourself. The cost may be Abandoning yourself for the good of others, denying yourself for the good of others, letting your wife pick the restaurant you go to. Instead of watching the game, spending time with your kids. Instead of reading the book, spending time with your wife. It involves sacrifice. Use your freedom to serve one another through love. Through love, serve one another. So who are you to serve? Well, one another. Primarily, I think Paul has in mind those in the church. But that's not the limit. In the next verse, he quotes Leviticus 19.18 and says, You shall love your neighbor as yourself. And we know who Jesus defines as our neighbor. And in chapter 6, verse 10, it says, So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. Who are you to love? One another, your neighbor, the household of faith, everyone. You can't cross off that, your list the person you don't like. You have that list, right? 
We can put that up in the hallway next time. We've got lots of lists out there. (laughs) People you don't like, add it to the list. And then what do you do? Through love, serve. Act as a slave. Put yourself in a position of humility. Don't think of yourself as the master of the person you don't like. Like You don't like them because they don't serve your needs. You probably don't like them because they don't fit your, your mindset of what they should be like. You've kind of put yourself as, your, as their master in your mind, and you want them to be this way. You want them to do this. You want them to do that. Nope, that's not the way we get to live. We use our freedom to become slaves. And so this church should not be a church of masters, but a church of slaves. We serve one another through love. What a delightful thought to consider a church where everyone has the mindset of preferring one another's interests above their own. Of coming together with the mindset of how can I wash my dear brothers and sisters' feet, because they are more important than I am. I'm just a slave. They're my master. What a wonderful thought to consider marriages like that, where the husband doesn't consider himself as the master of the house, where he demands everyone at his beck and call to do what he wants, but considers himself the chief servant. The wife who is not bothered when things aren't going her way, but considers herself the chief servant. Suppressing personal preferences for the good and preferences of others. How are you to love? It says in verse 14 again, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. God's word is so wonderful because, sorry to insult you, but we're a bunch of weasels who just try to weasel our way out of anything we can so we could say, yeah, I, I serve people. I bring something to the potluck. Yeah, I love people. I didn't shout at anybody today. But no, it qualifies the kind of love that we're to have. We're to love our neighbor as ourselves. And so it just puts us into a corner where there's no getting out of it without submitting to the truth of what it says. We can't get out on technicalities on this one. It qualifies our love. Did you know that the person you most love in life is yourself? If you're hungry, you feed him. And usually with pretty good food, you try to stay away from the pig slop. The person you love most in life is yourself. If he's thirsty, you usually give him a drink. You try to get his favorite drink. If he's tired, you try to give him rest on a bed if you can get it. If he needs clothing, you get him clothes or you let your wife know. If he's in need of comfort, you try to comfort him. If he's sick, you try to heal him. If he's discouraged, you try to encourage him. If he's lonely, you try to find him companionship. 
When he's feeling antisocial, you try to get him away from people. If he's bored, you try to amuse him. If he's angry, you get offended with him. If he's sad, you get hurt with him. You know his favorite restaurant, sport, hobby, drink, book, movie, game, and song. You think about him more than anyone else. The person you love in life most is yourself. This has been unfortunately distorted to think that in order to fulfill this command, you have to love yourself well. That is not the point at all. The point is you already love yourself well. The problem is you don't like love others the way that you love yourself. Nope. The point is, as much as you love yourself, you need to go and love your neighbor. Now, if you try this, you're going to get some kickback. And guess from who? Your favorite person. (laughs) He's not going to like it because he's selfish and likes it when you pay attention to him and not others. And so don't be surprised that when you try to put this into action, there's going to be some fight. There's going to be some kicking, some screaming, some yelling. Oh, may that old man die within us. May he, God, make us like Jesus Christ, who was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but humbled himself by taking the form of a slave. Who else do you do those things for that you do for yourself? And yet we're told, love your neighbor as yourself. This is the right application of Christian freedom. Christian freedom, you've got everything taken care of. Your eternal bank account is full to the brim. You don't need to stockpile it anymore so you can go out and serve others with love as you love yourself. And if you think, well, I've never, I've never been loved that way, so I don't know how to love others. Nope. If you know Jesus Christ, you have been loved with the kind of love that you are called today to exert towards others. Do you understand the gospel? Do you understand that Jesus Christ came down from heaven and gave up everything for you, even though you didn't thank him at first, you didn't do anything more than treat him like dirt? If you were there, you'd be crying out, crucify him. He didn't come to serve and save those who were saints. He came to serve and save the lost. But we gain from him. We gain everything from him. Every good thing that you have is a gift, a gift from God above who gives it to you out of love. So now in the freedom in which you stand, use that freedom to serve others. Use your freedom to serve others. Next is use your freedom to fulfill the law. Verse 14, it says, For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. We don't need to spend a lot of time on this. It's simply pointing to the fact that the Old Testament law was really pointing towards the fulfillment of love 
in Christ that were then ultimately displayed in his people, not that they love for merit's sake, but they love for love's sake, for God's glory's sake. And so as you love one another, you really don't need the individual laws of the Old Testament. What you need is the example of Christ and you need the love in your heart for others. And as you do so, amazingly enough, the law is fulfilled. Romans 13, 8 through 10 says, Owe no one anything except to love each other. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment are summed up in this word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. One commentator puts it this way. The law was imposed on rebellious human beings. Its practical effect was to exacerbate their rebelliousness. Paradoxically, it is those who are not under the law, but led by the Spirit, who are enabled to show the love that was the goal of all the law's commandments. End quote. Amazingly, when you are freed from the condemnation of the law and filled with the Spirit, then you, be able, you become able to fulfill the goal of the law, which is to love your neighbor. So how do you use your freedom? Well, you use it to fulfill the law. And finally, how do you use your freedom? Don't use your freedom to destroy others. Don't use your freedom to destroy others. Verse 15, But if you bite and devour one another, Watch out that you are not consumed by one another. That's the ramification of believers not living out their freedom rightly. Alexander Strauch wrote a book entitled, If You Bite and Devour One Another. And he describes in that a fictionalized account of a church Even though it's fictionalized, it represents very real happenings within a church. And so the details may be changed to protect the identities, but the reality has been experienced in many places. Let me share this with you just to close so you understand where things go when we are not living out our Christian freedom, but living in the flesh. Strauch writes, quote, Chapel Hill Church a large Bible-believing church invited an evangelist for a week of special messages. At the end of the week, the evangelist challenged the congregation to develop a deeper devotion to Christ and to be more committed to sharing the gospel. Then, without showiness, coercion, or endless appeals, he invited people to come to the front of the auditorium and kneel with him in prayer. His messages had touched many people's hearts, and they responded to his invitation. But this church was not accustomed to altar calls. And as the meeting ended, a prominent church member expressed to all within earshot his disagreement with the evangelist's altar call. His loud, angry words and facial expressions shocked those around him. He accused the evangelist of unscriptural practices and emotional manipulation. 
He even threatened to leave the church if the leadership did not deal immediately with the situation. Upon hearing the angry man's accusations, some people jumped to defend the evangelist. They saw that God had used the evangelist to revive their spiritually dry church and supported his challenge to greater evangelism. They accused those who opposed the altar call of being narrow-minded traditionalists who always resist change. They also accused them of being insensitive to the Holy Spirit's leading and of not caring for the lost. Other people sided with the angry complainer, claiming that the evangelist was preaching a gospel of easy believism. They made slanderous remarks about the evangelist's motives and character and labeled anyone who agreed with him as liberal. They also attacked the church leaders, saying that they lacked spiritual discernment. They went so far as to ask the church leadership to resign, claiming that they had sinned against the church by inviting a wolf in sheep's clothing to preach. Soon gossip and rumors lit up the phone lines, past grievances against one another were rekindled, and hurtful accusations flew in every direction. Angry, inflammatory speech became the mode of communication. Misinformation, fear, suspicion, and distrust abounded. Friends and family members were recruited to choose sides. The leadership communicated poorly with the congregation, and the anger and hatred escalated. Within a year... Chapel Hill Church split into two separate groups. Each group claimed to be defending God's truth. There was no desire on the part of either group to seek reconciliation. They were happy to be done with one another. That's what happens when the path of the flesh is chosen rather than the path of true Christian freedom, which is serving one another. If you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. The health of the church is depending on you rightly living out your Christian freedom. Let us pray. Well, Father, I don't think one of us could say that we have completely obeyed you in living out our Christian freedom to serve one another. Father, would you humble us, make us a church full of servants and people who love each other, I thank you, Father, that there is a spirit of unity and of deference, of kindness, and of love. O Lord, help us to excel still more. Whatever selfishness is in us, Lord, forgive us. and Lead us to live in the freedom to which you have called us. Thank you for all that you have given us in Christ Jesus. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.